Chapter 1 of Idiala. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Idiala by Sarah Grand. Chapter 1. She came among us without flourish of trumpets. She just slipped into her place, almost unnoticed. But once she was settled there, it seemed as if we had got something we had wanted all our lives, and we should have missed her as you would miss the thrushes in the spring, or any other sweet, familiar thing. But what the secret of her charm was, I cannot say. She was full of inconsistencies. She disliked ostentation, and never wore those ornamental fidgets ladies delight in. But she would take a piece of priceless lace to cover her head when she went to water her flowers. And she said rings were a mistake. If your hands were ugly, they drew attention to them. If pretty, they hid their beauty. Yet she wore half a dozen worthless ones habitually for the love of those who gave them to her. It was said that she was striking in appearance, but cold and indifferent in manner. Some, on whom she had never turned her eyes, called her repellent. But it was noticed that men who took her down to dinner, or had any other opportunity of talking to her, were never very positive in what they said of her afterwards. She made every one, men and women alike, feel, and she did it unconsciously. Without effort, Without eccentricity, without anything you could name or define, she impressed you, and she held you, or at least she held me always, expectant. Nothing about her ever seemed to be of the present. When she talked, she made you wonder what her past had been, and when she was silent, you began to speculate about her future. But she did not talk much as a rule, and when she did speak, it was always some subject of interest, some fact that she wanted to ascertain accurately, or some beautiful idea that occupied her. She had absolutely no small talk for any but her most intimate friends, whom she was wont at times to amuse with an endless stock of anecdotes and quaint observations. And this made people of limited capacity hard on her. Some of these called her a cold, ambitious, unsympathetic woman, and perhaps, from their point of view, she was so. She certainly aspired to something far above them, and had nothing but scorn for the dead level of dull mediocrity from which they would not try to rise. To be distinguished among these people, she once said, it is only necessary to have one's heart dowered with the hate of hate, the scorn of scorn, the love of love. There is no need to do anything. If you have the right feeling, you may be as passive as a cow and still excel them all, for they never thrill to a noble thought. Then pity them, I said. No, despise them, she answered. Pity is for affliction, for such shortcomings are as hereditary and can hardly be remedied, for the taint in nature which is all but hopeless. But these people are not afflicted. They could do better if they would. They know the higher walk and deliberately pursue the lower. 
Their whole feeling is for themselves and such things as have power to move them through the flesh only. I would almost rather sin on the impulse of a generous but misguided nature and have the power to appreciate and the will to be better than live a perfect, loveless woman caring only for myself like these. I should do more good. They called Idiala unsympathetic. Yet I have known her silence from excess of sympathy. She could walk with you, reading your heart and soul, sorrowing and rejoicing with you, and make you feel without a word that she did so. It was this power to sympathize and the longing she had to find good in everything that made her forgive the faults that were patent in a nature with which she was finally brought into contact for the sake of the virtues which she discovered hidden away deep down under a slowly hardening crust of that kind of self-indulgence which mars a man. But her own life was set to a tune that admitted of endless variations. Sometimes it was difficult even for those who knew her best to detect the original melody among the clashing chords that concealed it. But let it be hidden as it might, one felt that it would resolve itself eventually through many a jarring modulation and startling cadence, perhaps back to the perfect key. I saw her first at a garden party. She scarcely noticed me when we were introduced. There were great masses of white cloud drifting up over the blue above the garden, and she was wholly occupied with them when she could watch them without rudeness to those about her. And even when she was obliged to look away, I could see that she was still thinking of the sky. Do you live much in cloud land? I asked, and felt for a moment I had said a silly thing. But she turned to me quickly and looked at me for the first time as if she saw me. And when I say she looked at me, I mean something more than an ordinary look. For Idiala's eyes were a wonder, affecting you as a poem does, which has power to exalt. Ah, you feel it too, she said. Are they not beautiful? Will you sit beside me here? You can see the river as well, down there, beneath the trees. I thought she would have talked after that, but she did not. When I spoke to her once or twice, she answered absently, and presently she forgot me altogether and began to sing to herself softly. Flow down, cold rivulet, to the sea, thy tribute wave deliver. No more by thee my steps shall be for ever and for ever. Then, suddenly recollecting herself, she stopped and exclaimed in much confusion, Oh, please forgive me. That stupid thing has been running in my head all day, and it is a way I have. I always forget people and begin to sing. She did not see in the least that her apology might have been considered an adding of insult to injury, and, of course, I was careful not to let her know that I thought it so, although I must confess that for a moment I felt just a trifle aggrieved. I thought my presence had bored her, and was surprised to see, when I got up to go, that she would rather have had me stay. 
She cared little for people in general and had few likings. It was love with her, if anything. But those whom she loved once, she loved always, never changing in her affection for them, however badly they might treat her. And she had the power of liking people for themselves, regardless of their feeling for her. Indeed, her indifference on this score was curious. I once heard a lady say to her, You are one of the few young married ladies whom I dare chaperone in these degenerate days. No degree of admiration or worship ever seems to touch you. Is it real or pretended, your unconsciousness? Unconsciousness of what? Of the feeling you excite. The feeling I excite? Idiola seemed to think a moment. Then she answered gravely, I do not think I am conscious of anything that relates to myself personally in my intercourse with people. They are ideas for me for the most part, men especially so. That way she had of forgetting people's presence was one of her peculiarities. If she liked you, she was content just to have you there, but she never showed it except by a regretful glance when you went away. She was very absent, too. One day, I found her with a big, awkward volume on her knee, heated, excited, and evidently put out. Is anything the matter? I wanted to know. Oh, yes, she answered desperately. I've lost my pen, and I'm writing for the mail. Why, where are you looking for it? I asked. She glanced at me, and then at the book. I, I believe, she faltered, I was looking for it among the peas in the French dictionary. On another occasion, I watched her revising a manuscript. As she wrote her emendations, she gummed them on over the old copy, and she was so absorbed that at last she put the gum brush into the ink bottle. Discovering her mistake, she gave a little disconcerted sort of laugh and took the brush away to wash it. She returned presently, examining it critically to see if it were perfectly cleansed, and having satisfied herself, she carefully put it back in the ink bottle. But perhaps the funniest instance of this peculiarity of hers was one that happened in the Grosvenor Gallery on a certain occasion. She had been busy with her catalog, doing the pictures conscientiously and not talking at all, when suddenly she burst out laughing. Do you know what I have been doing? she said. I wanted to know who that man is, indicating a gentleman of peculiar appearance in the crowd. And I have been looking all over him for his number that I might hunt up his name in the catalog. Her way of seeing analogies as plausible as the obvious relation of P to pen and of acting on wholly wrong conclusions deduced from most unexceptionable premises, was another characteristic. She always blamed her early education, or rather want of education, for it. If I had been taught to think, she said, when my memory was being burdened with historical anecdotes torn from the text and other useless scraps of knowledge, I should be able to see both sides of a subject and judge rationally now. As it is, I never see more than one side at a time, and when I have mastered that, I feel like the old judge in some Greek play who, when he had heard one party to a suit, begged that the other would not speak as it would only poggle what was then clear to him.
But in this, Idiala was not quite fair to herself. It was not always, although unfortunately it was oftenest at critical moments, that she was beset with this inability to see more than one side of a subject at a time. The odd thing about it was that one never knew which side, the pathetic or the humorous, would strike her. Generally, however, it was the one that related least to herself personally. This self-forgetfulness with a keen sense of the ludicrous led her sometimes, when she had anything amusing to relate, to overlook considerations which would have kept other people silent. I saw a pair of horses running away with a heavy wagon the other day, she told us once. It was in Cross Street, and there was a child in the way. There always is a child in the way. And as there was no one else to do it, I ran into the road to remove that child. I had to pull it aside quickly, and there was no time to say, allow me. In fact, there was no time for anything. And in my hurry, I lost my balance and fell in the mud, and the wagon came tearing over me. It was an unpleasant sensation, but I wasn't hurt, you know. Neither the wheels nor the horses touched me. I got very dirty, though, and I have no doubt I looked as ridiculous as I felt, and for that I expected to be tenderly dealt with. But when I went to ask after the child a few days later, a neighbor told me that its mother was out, and it was a good thing, too, as she had been heard to declare she would go for that lady the next time she saw her for flinging of her bairn about. When she had told the story, Idiala was horrified to find that the fact, which she had overlooked, of her having risked her life to save the child struck us all much more forcibly than the ingratitude that amused her. Although her sense of humor was keen, it was not always, as I said before, the humorous side of a subject that struck her. I found her one day looking utterly miserable. What has happened? I asked. You look sad. And I feel sad, she answered. I was just thinking, what a pity it is those gay, pleasure-loving, flower-clad people of Hawaii are dying out. She was quite in earnest, and could not be made to see that there was anything droll in her mourning poignantly for a people so remote. Another instance of her absent-mindedness recurs to me. The incident was related at our house one evening, in Idiala's presence, by Mr. Lloyd, a mutual friend. A clever drawing by another friend, of Idiala trying to force a cabman to take ten shillings for a half-crown fare, one of the great fears of her life being the chance of not giving people of that kind as much as they expected, had caused Idiala to protest that she did understand money matters. Oh, yes, we all know that your capacity for business is quite extraordinary, Mr. Lloyd said, with a smile that meant something. And then, addressing us all, he asked, Did I ever tell you about her coming to borrow five shillings from me one day? Shall I tell, Idiala? You may, if you like, Idiala answered, getting very red. But the story is not interesting. We all began to be anxious to hear it. Judge for yourselves, Mr. Lloyd said. One day, the head clerk came into my private room at the bank, looking perplexed and discomfited. Please, sir, he said, a lady wishes to see you. A lady, I answered. Ladies have no business here. What does she want? She would not say, sir, and she would not send in her name. She said it did not matter. I began to wonder what I had been doing. 
"'What is she like?' I asked. He looked all round as if in search of a simile, and then he answered, "'Well, sir, she's more like a picture than anything.' "'Show her in,' I said. Here the story was interrupted by a shout of laughter. He laughed a little himself. "'I should have been polite in any case,' he declared apologetically. The clerk ushered in a lady whose extreme embarrassment made me sorry for her. She changed color half a dozen times in as many seconds, and then she hurled her errand at my head in these words, without any previous preparation to break the blow. Mr. Lloyd, can you lend me five shillings? And before I had recovered, she continued, I came in by train this morning, and I've lost my purse, and can't get back if you won't help me. At least, I think I've lost my purse. I took it out to give sixpence to a beggar, and—and and here is the sixpence. And she held it out to me. She had given her purse to the beggar, and carried the sixpence off in triumph. You may well say, O oh, Idiala. And Mr. Lloyd was so very good as to take me to the station, and see me into the train, Idiala murmured and he gave me his bank book to amuse me on the journey, and carried Huxley's elementary physiology, which I had come in to buy, off in a triumph. But with all her self-forgetfulness, there were moments in which she showed that she must have thought deeply about herself, weighing her own individuality against others, to see what place she occupied in her own age, and how she stood with regard to the ages that had gone before. Yet, even this she seemed to have done in a selfless way, having apparently examined herself coolly, critically, fairly, as she might have examined any other specimen of humanity in which she felt an interest, unbiased by any special regard. People always want to know if I write, or paint, or play, or what I do, she once said to me. They all expect me to do something. My function is not to do, but to be. I make no poetry. I am a poem, if you read me aright. And again, in a moment of despondency, she said, I am one of the weary women of the 19th century. No other age could have produced me. When she said she did nothing, she must have meant she was not great in anything, for her time was all occupied, and those things in which she was interested were never so well done without her help. If any crying abuse were brought to light in the old cathedral city, if any large measure of reform were set on foot, if the local papers suddenly became eloquent in favor of some good movement and adroit in their powers of persuasion, if burdens had to be lifted from the oppressed and the weak defended against great odds, you might be sure that Idiala was busy, and her work could be detected in it all. And she was especially active when efforts were being made to find amusement for the people. That is what they want, poor things, she would say. Their lives are such a dreary round of dull, monotonous toil, and they have so little sun to cheer them. They ought to be taught to laugh and have the brightness put into themselves, and then it would seem as if they had been relieved of half the atmospheric pressure beneath which they groan. Think of what your own life would be if day after day brought you nothing but toil. If you had nothing to look back upon, nothing to look forward to, but the labor that makes a machine of you, deadening the power to care, 
and holding mind and body in the galling bondage and weariness of everlasting routine. She thought laughter an unfailing specific for most of the ills of life. We can none of us be thankful enough for the sensation, she said. Nothing relieves the mental oppression which does such moral and physical harm like mirth. Of course, I mean legitimate laughter, not levity, nor the ill-natured rejoicing of small minds in such subjects for sorrow as their neighbors' faults, follies, and mistakes. What I am thinking of is the pleasure without excitement, which there is in sympathetic intercourse with those large, loving natures that elevate, and the laughter without bitterness, which is always a part of it. Like most people whose goodness is neither affected nor acquired, but natural to them, Idiala saw no merit in her own works, and would not take the credit she deserved for them. Nor would she have had her good deeds known at all if she could have helped it. But knowledge of these things leaks out somehow, although probably not a third of what she did will ever be even suspected. End of chapter one. Read by Kyle Stedman, Rockford, Illinois.